sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dias, and here we are, the month that changed everything. If you haven't listened to some of the previous broadcasts, that's okay. I'm going to catch everybody up. This is our final episode of 2020, looking back 30 years ago on Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And for me, and I suspect a lot of people in the 217th EVAC Hospital out of San Antonio, Texas, uh, it, it changed their lives too. I've always been fascinated. You know, you used to watch the news, and it seemed like every night somebody got hit in an intersection on their way to work and was tragically killed. I always wonder how they ended up there. Was it just some quirk of fate, didn't catch the light, went back for their purse or their, their, I almost said phone. We didn't have phones in 1990. That's the year we're talking about. What were the things that just changed people's lives, the way we meet people? December of 1990 changed the trajectory of my life, and I think, like I said, that's probably true for a lot of people, Gen Xers that served in Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. It was a war of World War, of, of uh, baby boomers and Gen Xers. That was the age range that fought that and won that war, for that matter. To catch everybody up, in August of 1990, Saddam Hussein, the dictator-slash-president of Iraq, invades a country most Americans had never heard of, Kuwait, which is about the size of Ohio, but it happened to be on the border with Saudi Arabia. And every American in 1990 that owns a car, if they've got a lot of money, can buy unleaded gasoline, but there are also plenty of Americans driving cars, myself included, that took regular gasoline. The entire world is fueled by oil, and Saudi Arabia is the CEO of Oil Incorporated worldwide. We could have lived without Kuwait, but not Saudi Arabia. And so this invasion of Kuwait in 1990, I had two maps on my wall as a child and all through high school. My mom got them for me, a map of the world, these flat paper maps, just with thumbtacks, dum 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 and a map of the United States. And geography always fascinated me. I was good at geography. And I had no idea where Kuwait was when I heard the news. I knew Iraq was over there because of Bible study. You know, I knew it was over in that Middle East area, but Kuwait never heard of it. So in August of 1990, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. It is important to remember what life is like in America in 1990, 30 years ago. There is no such thing as a computer that you can use. There is no such thing as free Wi-Fi because there is no Wi-Fi. There is no social media. You get your news and your information from your three channels in PBS, CNN, well-established. Not established, but it's there in 1990. They're about to become CNN forever because of Desert Storm. They will be the eyes and ears of the opening hours of the war. There's no denying that. Now, they're a totally corrupt news organization now that I can't even watch and don't watch. But 30 years ago, they were really something. 
And Americans, primarily because Americans are good, decent, abiding Judeo-Christian people, they trust people. They believe what they hear on television and on their local news and in the paper and in Time magazine and Newsweek. And if you're really smart, U.S. News and World Report or People magazine. People magazine ran stories about, you know, so-and-so from West Virginia is going to Desert Shield. It was was all-encompassing. It didn't start that way. But as it got rolling through the summer, uh, August 1990, now we're in December of 1990, 30 years ago, by December, it's just, it's, this is going to happen. There's a sense of inevitability. The Pentagon has come out and said, we've, we've sent 30,000 body bags to the Gulf. And that's the point I want to make about the media. The narrative was the United States, the post-Vietnam War United States military, could not beat the fourth largest army in the world. It's just impossible. Myself and a small minority of people within the American military, I had already served three years in the United States Army in the infantry. I was not an accountant or a dental assistant or a cook. All those are very necessary things to support the guys that, you know, hump the clicks. That's not profanity. It is, it is infantry jargon. Um, that just means walking the clicks, kilometers, humping the hills of Fort Hunter Liggett in Panama and Australia and everywhere in between. We need all those people. But I was there. I saw what the military had become, not what it was. And what it become was basically the Viet Cong with better gear, with an army and a navy and the best artillery in the world and rockets that could hit air conditioning units on some balcony in Beirut if they had to. The Ronald Reagan buildup. His vice president is the commander-in-chief in 1990. I thought the war might last a month. But the majority of Americans in December of 1990 are actually against the war. Uh, there's this notion, yeah, we all came together after. It's easy to go with the winner. But in December of 1990, with the usual distractions of you know, Christmas time and end of the year, it, but it is all people are talking about is what I'm getting at. But in a very conventional sense, a very 20th century sense, they're not sharing things on Facebook. They're not taking instant polls on Twitter. They're talking about it with their friends and family at home, at church, and at work, and maybe at the grocery store. It is the story on everybody's minds and on their lips. I mean, everybody's talking about it. To catch you up, despite having a stellar career in the regular Army, 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry, 7th Infantry Division, Light, Fort Ord, California, 1986 or 1989, I had gone from the major leagues of the 7th ID to a church softball team and not a very good one. I got out of the regular Army and stayed in the reserves and was attached to a hospital, a Texas National Guard hospital, which I thought was so far beneath me that it was an insult. And I had spent the last year and a half trying to get out of that unit. But you sign a contract in the military, and there weren't any infantry placements in San Antonio. It's the home of American military medicine to this very day. I am what you would call brown, Hispanic, or whatever, but my parents adopted my brother, myself, and my sister Elizabeth. And we are 
Hispanic, but I, I don't I didn't grow up on the west side of San Antonio or the south side of San Antonio. I don't speak Spanish. I never have. You know, my parents are from Massachusetts. They ended up in Texas and adopted those babies in Texas, but they're, they're white, wonderful white folks. And so when I arrived from Fort Ord, carrying that sense of I'm better than you, all my fault, vanity, my greatest fault, pridefulness, the people in the Texas National Guard were people we called weekend warriors, bums, pretend soldiers, those goofballs from the first Rambo movie, but worse. I referred to my unit as a bunch of fat Mexicans. That's how I referred to them. It was a medical unit. We had men and women, all part-time soldiers, a few priests, what we used to call priests, uh, regular service, I forgot what we called them, people that had prior service, prior service, like me. But I was, I was lean and mean. I had just come out of the green fighting machine of the 7th ID. But that combined with the culture clash that I've always experienced uh, because of the, the fact that I don't speak Spanish. I don't have a lot of Hispanic cultural attachments. Uh, I did not get along with the people in that unit. They did not like me, and I did not like them. The contempt was mutual. But well, I only had to see them once a month for two days, and then two weeks in the summer. It was no big deal. However, amidst that group of people, I made one very dear friend, Mike Alonzo. He's now a police officer and a good one out in Kirby, Texas, where I grew up, between Converse and Kirby. I went to Kirby Elementary. I went to Kirby Junior High School. And a gentleman by the name of John Moya, a former Marine, a bodybuilder. I think he was 5'6 and 6 feet wide, nothing but muscle, a pit bull, a former Marine. He had gone from the Marine Corps to this 217th evacuation hospital. And he was as insulted as I was. Mike was a young guy. Mike was not a fat Mexican. He was a good and motivated soldier, a good soldier. And as I said in a prior episode, when it all came down to the war, everyone in that unit did their job. They did not act heroically, they acted honorably, which is the deal you make when you accept the VA loan and the Hazelwood Act and the you know, uh, emergency medical care if you need it at the VA at some point. Myself, Mike, and John were our little war family. Since the, the Romans, you know, since the Crusaders marched onto the, the battlefield at Doraleum back in modern-day Turkey, you get thousands of people in a military, in an army, there's always like three or four guys that end up hanging out together. My three, the, our, our war family, starting with Desert Shield and Desert Store. And that experience was myself, Mike Alonzo, and John Moya. Three amigos, inseparable, getting ready to head over to the war. And they were good guys. I saw John Moya once about 10 years ago here in New Braunfels, and there was just a, you know, not time to catch up kind of vibe. I got that. I get that. And after doing a little research, I, I understood why. It's okay. We all, we are who we are. We are who we were. Anyway, December of 1990. If you recall, December of 1990 is bringing a close to the year for me, the worst year of my life. My time in the military does not appear to have paid off. I've got two semesters of college under my belt when most of my high school friends have already graduated from college. I don't enjoy college. I don't enjoy the liberal professors. I don't enjoy the whack job liberal students. I grew up in a military community. Even the kids were pretty wiretight. I've made the decision not to, to re-enroll at San Antonio College. In, the, in January of 1991, I've decided to rejoin the enlisted military and just do my 20 years. 
get out, sell insurance or whatever, have a paycheck for the rest of my life, the way my brother does. I have been reduced in December of 1990 at the beginning of the month to working at Endicott Johnson Shoe Store at Windsor Park Mall, which is now Rack Space in San Antonio, the same job I had as a 16-year-old, part-time, 20-hour-a-week high school student, stock and shelves. That's what I've been reduced to. However, after a great post-Thanksgiving and early December run, I was told early in December, hey, you are in line to be the assistant manager of this store. Wow, big deal. I'm pumping up, bumping up from 375 I think, to like 475 an hour. I was told that on a Monday. And then that very Friday, the first week of December 1990, I was also told, yeah, we're going to need your help because they're closing this store. And they did. Again, generationally speaking, when you are, as I was in those days, living paycheck to paycheck, I was from an upper middle class home. If I, I borrowed the occasional $40 from my parents, you got to eat. But in December of 1990, I am a paycheck to paycheck guy. I pay my rent. I've got a car payment. I've got to pay the electrical bill, the cable bill. You know, I'm talking disposable income of, I don't know, 20 bucks a week. Do what you want. Go have Taco Bell or whatever. There's no Indeed. There's no LinkedIn. There's no Monster.com. There's no Glassdoor.com. So I realized that I'm going to have to quit the shoe store because I'm not going to have a job. They're closing the store. They're not even holding out till Christmas. They're done. It's over. It's not going to take six months. It's going to take a week <laughs> packing everything up. <laughs> We're closing. Sell everything kind of vibe. So the way you found jobs in those days is you walked around the mall and said, are you hiring? Can I get an application? Or you, you checked the Sunday paper. I did a little bit of both. In the Sunday paper, early in December of 1990, I saw an ad for Texas Med Clinic. Since I had received some basic medical training in the Army, I applied and was amazed that they, they called. They didn't call. They didn't call. I filled out the application. Okay, can you go upstairs and talk to a person who's hiring? I think that's what happened. This is 30 years ago, people. Anyway, my interview was with a lady named Marilyn. Since December 1990, I learned that the Texas Med Clinic, there's tons of them now. It is a huge business in South Texas now. There were three clinics in 1990, the Colonnade, Blanco Road, and Broadway. And the clinic at Broadway had a second floor that had all the administrative offices, you know, both of them. And I sit down for my interview, and this lady, Marilyn, I do not remember her last name. I want to say it was Marilyn Howard, but I think I'm thinking of Happy Days. Anyway, Marilyn. I mean, the first thing she asks me, when well, she tells me, you know, this is Texas Med Clinic. It's owned by a former Air Force doctor, Dr. Buddy Swift. He likes to hire military people, so that's why we were interested in your application. There are no resumes. I've never had a resume in December of 1990. Oh, real quick, I forgot to mention, I, even though I did not like college, while I was in San Antonio College for that year, I had been elected president of the College Republicans. I am acutely aware of what's going on in the news. I'm following it incredibly closely. The other thing I remember about early December, in that time period, Saddam Hussein says, okay, 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 uncle, maybe I'll talk this out after all. All right. And then a couple weeks later says, forget it. I'm going to attack Israel first anyway, and this whole thing is going to blow up in your face, President Bush. So Marilyn sits me down, very cordial, 
And the first question is, is there, listen, you know, hey, we, we hire a lot of military people, so we're losing a lot of military people who are getting deployed, reservists like myself. She said, is there any chance you're going to get called up? And I said what I always said. I said, ma'am, my unit, the 270th Evacuation Hospital, a bunch of fat Mexicans, is not going anywhere. If we get deployed, it's because we're losing the war. And she's just laughing and, all right, okay. I mean, that's it. Do you know how to take temperature? Uh, do you know how to do vital signs? He says, okay, we really need you. And uh, can you come in Friday to do, what I guess, what was called new employee orientation? You spend a couple hours meeting people, seeing how things are done, da, 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 then you get put on the schedule. Meet the, meet the clinic manager, yeah, this kind of thing. Absolutely. This is the second week in December now, 1990. I go to my new employee orientation, fill out your W-2 forms. How many exemptions do you take? I never knew. I never knew. Just zero, I guess, one, I don't know. This place was going to pay me five sixteen an hour. This is a this is awesome. I, I figure I can work here for the next couple months until I get back in the army and it's going to be a great gig. Again, remember, in the second week of December, I'm convinced they're not sending the two seventeenth evacuation hospital within earshot of the war unless we're losing. I get back from that Friday new employee orientation feeling great. Put in the shoe store in my past. This is a great gig, a very professional environment at the Texas Med Clinic on Broadway. I get home, I walk into my apartment, and millennials and younger, you'll probably have to Google this. I saw the light blinking on my answering machine. This message is for Specialist Dias. This is Sergeant Lopez from the 217 Evacuation Hospital. You were ordered to report, I think he called it for drill but it, that's not the word he used, report to the armory on the 26th of December, the day after Christmas. The 217th Evacuation Hospital is being activated full-time in support of Operation Desert Shield. Now, in those days, you could leave a funny answering machine message, and people could also leave you funny answering machine messages. Um, two of my friends had left crank uh, messages on my answering machine. Yes, uh, specialist eyes. We're sending you on a secret mission. You know, to Iraq. You've been. De- you're going to be deployed. You know, just. And I thought, no, no, no. This one. <laughs> this one sounds legit. So I uh, called the the unit, and it was it was confirmed. Twenty sixth. Well, I uh, get back in my car. I drive back to the Texas Med Clinic on Broadway, and. I ask if I can please see Marilyn. There's something very important I have to tell her. I think their first thought was, uh-oh, he's not going to take the job after all. And that was what that was a look on Marilyn's face when she walked out of her office. And what happens next is why I will always love the Texas Med Clinic. That's why I'm loyal to the Texas Med Clinic. I don't ever get sick, but one time I did put my knee through a glass drafting table while I was hanging up a curtain. And um, I had to get some stitches, and I went right to the Texas Med Clinic. That's the only place I will go for, you know, as Dr. Bernard Harris once re- referred to as, why do you go to the Texas Med, Med Clinic? Cold, flu, boo-boo. You know, you need cold, uh, you need some stitches. We did a lot of stuff at Texas Med Clinic. It was like an ER. We fixed broken arms. We, we took some people with cardiac issues. But it wasn't a place to bring a gunshot victim, although I suspect our doctors would have taken care of it. I would have. I, would, I know how to treat a gunshot. Anyway. What transpires next is one of the moments of grace in the, in the month of December that I've never forgotten, and it happened at the Broadway office of the Texas Med Clinic. That's not, I don't think that building's even used anymore for that. I don't think it's there anymore, that building. 
It's right by the airport. Marilyn just, I tell her, I'm sorry, I, I swear I did not think we were, I just got a message, I've confirmed it, it's, we're, we're apparently being activated. Doesn't mean we're going. I, I always thought we were just going to get sent to Fort Bragg or Fort Hood to support all the people that had actually left to go overseas, downrange as we used to say. And she just, she didn't act disappointed, she didn't, you know, well, you should have told me this. She just... The only word is motherly. She was motherly. Okay, okay, well, you've got a lot to think about. And then she did something that was exceptional, exceptionally kind. She says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put you on the schedule for, the, for Christmas Day. We need a lot of help on Christmas Day at the clinics. You're going to go work at the Blanco Clinic. It's our slowest one. Should be very slow that day, but you'll get to know things. More importantly, you'll have a day on the job. And you cannot be fired because of the Sailor Soldier Act. If you get called to war as a reservist and you got a full-time job, that company cannot fire you because of it. It's called the Sailor Soldier. I didn't even know what it was. She knew what it was. She was an HR person. She goes, do what you have to do and know that you'll have a job waiting for you when you get home. That was like taking the confidence dial on my back and turning it into the red line. Because in truth, I wanted to go to that war. I was trying to find any way to get into that war. My old unit, 7th ID, their area of operation was Central America and drug interdiction and stuff like that. And the commies down in Central America, they weren't going anywhere near Desert Storm. I don't believe 7th ID ever deployed to Desert Shield or Desert Storm. So I wasn't trying to get back to my old unit. I was just trying to get there. And and like I said, this, this is my plan. It can take four or five months to get back in the active duty. You just don't, hey, I'll, sh I'm, I'll show up on Monday. There's a lot of paperwork and stuff that has to happen. So I thought even, when I, even if we do go and I get back from this, whatever this is going to be, it's, it's called Desert Shield at the time. Okay, I'll have a nice little job for a few months. That means, again, paycheck to paycheck. I'm not thinking, you know, 10 years ahead. I'm 23 years old. So that was just exceptional. And that's what I remember about December of 1990. It was a very slow day at the Blanco Clinic, at the Texas Med Clinic. I think we saw two patients. I do not remember the doctor. And then on December 26th, 30 years ago, this very week, as I'm recording, on the 28th of December, Christmas was on a Tuesday, because remember I used to like taking off Wednesdays, and Wednesday was the day we reported. I started the odyssey of going from a civilian, part-time, National Guard soldier, to returning to the full-time Army. And the, and the Army hours, you didn't work from 8 to 4 in the Army. You got there when they told you, and, they le and you left when they let you leave. A total transformation of lifestyle, a, a three-week crash course in just the inefficiency of a big organization like the military, let's just be honest. We're great at fighting the wars, but man, the administration behind the scenes is, was a little chaotic in the 1990s. Again, no computers. Even the Army didn't have many computers. The ID card I took with me to the war was just a piece of paper that was laminated. Thus began a journey that would take me from the armory down in San Antonio near Fort Sam Houston to the epicenter of the greatest show on earth that would transform the way the entire country felt about the American military. 
that would transform the meaning of what it meant to win the Cold War. The historical implications of Operation Desert Storm are just, they're far-reaching. They are still reverberating in many ways today. Desert Storm is not just going to change the lives of the people that serve in it. It's going to change the, uh, the relationship between America's civilians and America's military in a very positive way that I think continues to this very day, 30 years later. And, as I'm loath to mention, it's the last war we won definitively. We haven't lost any since then, but we haven't really won one. Can you think of when did we win the war in Iraq in 2003? When did we win the war in Afghanistan? When was the parade? I didn't hear about it. It's going to be a lesson in how the military always does what is asked of it. And the political class always, always, always finds a way to mess it up. Because the political class has to have problems to solve. It's not political. Both parties do it. It all goes back to George Washington. Everybody in the world thought George Washington was to declare himself the king of America. And nobody would have objected. Nobody in America would have objected. And George Washington resigned. And the civilian control of the military continues to this very day. So there's a lot of history coming up on Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. But I wanted to catch people up. I'm 23 years old. I arrived at the armory. And then we did a lot of our processing at Fort Sam Houston. The book I was reading was Friday Night Lights, the original book about Odessa Permian a school that my high school beat in the 1995 state championship game here in Texas, which is bigger than the Super Bowl. Converse Judson High School. I'm fascinated with I love high school football in Texas. I'm reading Friday Night Lights. And I'm about to meet some people that I will never forget. I'm about to get reunited with one of my best buddies from the 7th Infantry Division days. And I'm about to see just how right my instincts had been that the American military that had clenched its fist in 1990 was about to deliver a knockout blow to the heavyweight champ, fourth largest army in the world. It showed videos of these Iraqi soldiers jumping through tires with their rifles. I'm like, whoopee-doo, I can jump through a tire with a rifle. And then you try it, and it doesn't go so well. But we didn't have YouTube to, to be embarrassed by the video. We're about to see the perfect. I'm about, we're about to so many things. Anyway, it's minute 26 here. We will we will continue next week. But we're about to. I'm about to get my first base. My basically my first email arrives in January of 1991, when I'm in a place I didn't even know where I was. We'll talk about all of it. It's a lot of great history coming up. If you are a baby boomer or a Gen Xer, you probably have some memories of this. Thing, Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield. If you served in it, you obviously remember it. 30 years, you're like, oh, man, <laughs> don't go look at the pictures, folks. It's so depressing. I was so lead. I was so young. <laughs> but it was, it is a great experience, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. We're going to go from, like I said, San Antonio, Texas, to the epicenter of Operation Desert Storm. Until next week, take care. Oh,